The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Voice America welcomes you to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Now, here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. Good morning, everybody. I was very excited about this show this morning because we're going to talk about creativity and publishing and books. And Susan Weinstein is a friend of mine, and she joins our show to discuss the stunning new serial, The Anarchist Girlfriend. The ideas are as fresh as Occupy Wall Street, but the book was originally written in the 1970s, dealing with art, politics, mystics, and megalomaniacs, still relevant today. It is delightfully retro and powerfully prescient at the same time. In The Anarchist Girlfriend, Dostoevsky's Divine Idiot is reimagined as a Brooklyn go-go girl. I love this girl. She is such a great protagonist who's psychic and makes clothes of the future. She lives with the anarchist who silkscreens posters for his organization, Food for Vendettas, and Sandy, a video verite artist, nihilist. The story is told through the compassionate yet worldly eyes of Wayne, a deaf-mute journalist for the cultish news world which is a publication for those that don't know. Susan, it's a delight to have you on the show. Hi, great to be here, Cindy. That was a mouthful of an intro, and um, for those that don't understand a lot of the literary terminology, I suggest they go to Google. (laughs) Sure, sure, that would be great, or eat your cereal. (laughs) Exactly, I wanted to ask you all about that, and um, I want to congratulate you, too. I've read your book. I've read, you know, the chapters that you sent me, Susan, and I am so impressed by your visuals and the arcs and everything that they teach in um, the best of writing schools is really in your book, and you should be so proud of yourself. Your visuals are so powerful. It screams screenplay, Um, and I couldn't really put it down. You knew I was fighting you know, uh, a fever last week, and I really couldn't do anything much else but enjoy Sandy. <laughs> and I couldn't stop, even in my sickness. And I really want to encourage my listeners to do the same. If um, you need one of those, if you need some reading that you just want to be entertained by, um, if you understand um everything that was spoken about in the introduction, or even if you don't, you might be able to learn something. Um, it takes you back to, you know, a wonderful, wonderful time and uh, just very, very powerful writing. So with that said, I want to ask you, what is Eat Your Cereal so my listeners know? 
Okay, and thank you so much for that lovely, lovely introduction of, of positive feedback on this book. Um, Eat Your Cereal is a website that publishes new novels in what they're calling bites. In other words, they're publishing in serial form the way that Dickens originally published, the way that Dostoevsky originally published The Idiot, the way... Uh, the way most of Fitzgerald's books were published. They were magazine serials. And the idea is that they run five different novels simultaneously. They do a chapter a week, and they run them for all the weeks that, as long as the chapters last. So mine is, been, is going to be 16 weeks total. We're now up to 12. And so that it's a really great thing because people kind of go to the site they read a chapter or they can download that chapter and then they can wait for the following week until the next one's out. And it's a different way of reading. Um, people do this more on their phones today. And the whole, the whole experiment with Eat Your Cereal is the way that people are reading today is going back to the story is what they're saying. And the e-books on it will be available at the end of the run. Um, and people are buying subscriptions through their partner, Discover Lit. Uh, those subscriptions are for books that are already have already published through their system, and eventually they'll be able to get them on their phones and any other ways that they read. Uh, well, you know, I think that people, you know, e-reading has really changed the way people are entertaining themselves. And um, this, even though it's kind of an old school way of feeding people stories, it's it is the way again today. It's very, you know for people to be entertained with information. I mean, you download it to your phones or your Kindles or your Nooks or your iPads and, um, you know, run around with these little tablets or mini screens, and um, that's the way people are entertained. So it seems that Eat Your Cereal is, you know, perfect for that. Well, exactly, and there it's run by people who have been in publishing houses or are still working there, and they see that people are going back to the story as being essentially what they're interested in, um, and that's what they're doing. They're giving them books as they would like to receive them. And um, I want to congratulate you for being at the cutting edge of doing that. Tell me what inspired The Anarchist Girlfriend, because I know that you grew up in New York, and you grew up in the art scene, and... You know, you're, you're so um, unique, and you're a part of sort of an intellectual era that a lot of people miss. So, again, it's, you're taking a retro concept that people who grew up in New York certainly know about, or people that, you know, have a literary background certainly know about, or artsy. Um, it's, it's very, very New York City, and, um, you know, took it to a new EAT platform, but I want to hear more about the inspiration. Well, actually, I grew up in Philadelphia and moved to New York. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and I was living in a loft um, that looked into the public theater's men's dressing rooms, believe it or not. And in that loft on the Bowery, there was a whole, there was a whole world, and in that street and in that time in the lower, lower Manhattan, it was a whole time of art and music, and people would go to bars and clubs. They would read chapters, perform chapters. Um, they would go and talk about ideas. 
uh, it was very, very important what you believed in, and people would argue about it through the night. So it was very much what you think of the left bank of Paris being, where it was kind of a bohemian era. People weren't so concerned with business and fashion and money. It was a very different thing. In fact, it was considered almost a, a bad thing to talk about that because it meant that you weren't really a person who had a ethical or spiritual base. We didn't have much to you. Um, and so that period in New York, which was late 70s, uh, was a very exciting time. Now, it was also similar to what was going on in Dostoevsky's time, where there was the salon culture. It was in St. Petersburg. It was in different places in Russia. And you also had lots of people that would go around and they would talk about art and politics and life while they were flirting. And there was a lot of hypocrisy underneath it. And there was also a lot of people pursuing truth simultaneously. So at the time, I had read Dostoevsky's The Idiot and was very obsessed with Mishkin, the whole idea that you have a divine fool. Um, and what is that person? Now, some people say it, had, it was a Christ figure because of Dostoevsky's religion, but actually it's much older than that. It goes back to Tarot. It's in um, almost every the religious the religious iconography of almost every kind of religion. And I was curious, what would a divine fool be like at my time, and that was how the character started to evolve. Um, I thought of her as a person who would be like Mishkin, a kind of a mystic who other people project their feelings onto her, and she essentially is living not quite of this world, and she becomes a reflection of the whole society around her. No, she. I think she does. It's funny, Midnight in Paris kind of reflects that time of, um, you know, the the literary time that you talk about in France, you saw the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, and uh, so, and this was Midnight in Paris had its group of people. The group of people in New York would have been like, you know, Steve Buscemi. It would have been Nan Golden who did live down the street from me and was taking her photographs in the loft. There were all kinds of figures. There were Swiss mimes. There were film directors. There was a whole whole number of people. Wim vendors used to come and throw big parties. So it was a very there was also a whole group of people that were like this um, at the same time. Well, there was music, too, like the Chelsea. Oh, yeah. Well, the whole, the whole thing, you had David, David Byrne. Um, you had Brian Eno, people like that that were also coming to the same bars and talking to the same people. And it wasn't like there were celebrities and then there were regular people. What it was is that if you had an interest, you were part of that world. Oh, it's it's very very true, and um, I, it again you really capture this stuff, you know, just beautifully. Um, and you talked about how there's a parallel to the idiot. Um, I you know I want you to talk a little bit in this segment, and then we have three more segments to go, so you'll have plenty of time oh. to develop and talk. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about Sandy again and Wayne and why you chose sort of a deaf-mute journalist, you know, to tell the story. And then um, we'll take a commercial break. Okay. Um, in The Idiot, the narrator who's telling the story is looking at Mishkin, and he himself is trying to find a moral compass, some way to see what is true and what is not, what's worthwhile and what's not. And when he comes across... Michigan, he doesn't know if he's the biggest fool he ever met, but then he starts noticing how people interact with him. And as that happens, he starts exploring what, what is worthwhile in this society. And I chose Wayne 
who is a deaf mute journalist, it's actually a lot of these people are based on real people. I actually did know someone who was a writer who was a deaf mute, so it wasn't entirely fictional. <laughs> I and, figured that. <laughs> and the thing is, is that Wayne himself is is part of the news world. Now, the news world, the llama, in this, who's running a religious thing, is kind of a amalgam of Werner Erhard and Reverend Moon. So it's more of an existential religion with some kind of vague Buddhist flavor. But the big thing is it's the religion of business. And in The Idiot, there's also a businessman who has his own particular religion that's predominating at that time. And so Wayne is also exploring his, his compass of what are the values. Um, now, the religion that he has is something called the denotational church. And the denotational church is very much about things in context, that reality and truth emerges specifically by what you experience or what's in a certain situation. All right, so, I have to um, interrupt for a second because we're coming down to our last minute and I don't want people to lose the character. I asked oh, you a big question and I, I just want to sure. make sure that we, we save it to the next segment and we'll definitely revisit character direct, you know, character development and draw people into the characters that you've created. Um, and I don't want to lose the importance <laughs> when the music comes on and says, you know, we have to stop. So, right. um, Susan, let's take a quick commercial break, and um, we'll come back with Susan, talk more about the anarchist girlfriend and everything that is a part of it um i and also if it's okay with you susan in some of the last segments of the show i want to talk about you know how book marketing changed a little bit because you and i really became book buddies author buddies and i think we're really bonding over it because times <laughs> are changing and if you don't mind that i think the listeners would be very interested oh no we definitely should do that all right so don't go away more with susan weinstein after this commercial break Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com. Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. 
Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. If you have a question or comment, call in at 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Here's Cindy Rakowitz. We're back, folks, with Susan Weinstein. I want to talk about her blog, notanotherbookreview.blogspot.com, so you could check it out and read some of... Um, Susan's writing, um, she is a writer, a playwright, a painter, and I have to say a darn good publicist as well. And the reason, one of the many reasons why I love Susan is because um, she knows how to do her art and support herself at the same time. And when we have children that want to be artists, I just want to say the best advice you could give is be an artist, but find a way to support yourself, right, Susan? Yes, that is definitely <laughs> the most difficult thing, I think. Um, well, you know what? Um, I, I mentioned to you that my daughter is a part of the you know, artistic community in San Francisco, and I think the way that I trained her well is I was such a corporate mom you know, at Playboy Enterprises, you know, traveling and doing corporate stuff every day, and that's what she was around, and she wanted to do everything to get away from it. <laughs> well, you know, but still, you will give her the structure of when she needs to get her survival in gear, she will have it. You said she's already teaching, too. She's got her job that she can fall back on. Yeah, she does. she's a preschool teacher, and she's self-sustained. And even though you have a teenage son, one of the things that we all want for our children eventually one day is to be self-sustained. And um, I, I couldn't be more proud of that. Because, yes. you know, she she knew she had to find a way to make money, but yet, you know, she can do whatever she wants on her downtime, and preschool teaching gives her the, you know, the artistic time that she needs because there there really isn't overtime or, you know, weekend hours. It's very, very set in its schedule. So, um, you know, I want to just really congratulate you for finding the balance, as tough as it may be. You are such an extraordinary artist, and you find a way to support yourself. And, um, you know, you're you're finally coming into um, much more of a broader artist because of electronic communications. And you don't have to be in the East Coast. You could be everywhere. Well, yes, and I mean the thing. The thing is, is that I love books, and with the explosion on the internet of different kinds of book media, um, eat your cereal is one form of it, and I think it's really being innovative. But a lot of people are trying to figure out ways to do what they love, be it books, be it music, and make it in that big stage, the big international internet forum. And so for me, I, I love books, and plugging into that is really, really interesting. Oh, I think so. Well, I want to go back to the prior segment, and um, we were talking about your character development for Anarchist Girlfriend, and um, I kind of had to cut you off because of the commercial break. But uh, We were talking about some of your characters and, you know, their backgrounds, and, you know, I want you to continue from where we left off. 
Well, I guess what I'm saying is that every that ideology, what these people believe in, um, really does predict what happens to them at the end of the book. People change because of what happens in life, but I also am not a fatalist. Like the per, like when Woody Allen did Zelig, or there was the Peter Sellers movie Being There, or Tom Hanks, that movie he did. I don't remember the name of it, but there's one where they have people who are kind of divine idiots, and then they reflect the world around them. But in my book, I wanted people to change and show how, what happens when what they believe interacts with the world. And they are inevitably changed by it. So this was this was part of what I was trying to do in mapping them out. And um, Sandy is the opposite of the of the anarchist girlfriend that I call the AG, because she is a person who is not everything is planned, everything is worked out in advance, and she uses the switchboard because at that time people actually were switchboard operators. In fact, I myself was a switchboard operator in San Francisco one time. No, no, I know. I remember you. Well, there is a little bit, you know, of you reflected in Sandy, isn't there? Oh, definitely, because Sandy's into machinations. She's into um, this kind of thing, and she likes to own people and own situations by going out with her camera and compiling them, and then she cuts them and makes collages, and she has a whole thing. So she's very much the way a lot of visual artist have a way of looking at the world where they're going to manage it in this way. Now, she does, the answering service that she works on is actually true to a place that I worked at called AdLive, and one of the things also about it that sets the plot in motion, which I thought was interesting, is that I actually did meet a person who was involved with um, missiles that were being stored with Arizona dust. And that actually is a factual thing in the book that Sandy describes that does move the plot. Um, and she herself is always looking for power and looking for structures where she will be at the nexus of power, even though she may not actually know what she wants to have happen. Um, but she gets caught up in it to her, the process itself. That's why I said she's a nihilist. The process herself, and if it leads to a destruction or explosions, whatever, this is something that she, she is involved in. Um, and that, that is very different than anarchy, um, which really um, George Washington used to talk about the fact that he believed self-government was the best government and that he himself didn't believe in a central one needed to exist if people were enlightened. So that there actually is a very, what these things mean are very different than popularly what we think. So that has to do with what is driving Sandy. Um, and she does have a particular relationship to the anarchist girlfriend who is the exact opposite. Um, where things are about the atmosphere. She's a mystic. She experiences life in a sensorial way and is extreme clairvoyance, so she's feeling things. And so she's operating on intuitions, which is are, the... Are you, um, are, are you psychic, Susan? A um, little bit. used to be when I was younger. I used to dream, dream rock songs before they came on, before they happened. Well, you know, because you, I think that's also a reflection of character. I don't know if you could really write about a clairvoyance unless you experience a little bit of clairvoyance yourself. <laughs> well, it's one of those things that you can't usually talk about because people just think you're nuts. But there have been, I mean, I know a lot of people, and in fact, who have dream telepathy. And that's something that I've actually researched, and they were able to prove it beyond the 99 percentile. There have actually been experiments in it. And what it has to do with is people being able to um, have an emotional impetus that leads them to visualize something, and usually something that's outside of them. It can be something they haven't experienced yet. With me, it was obsession as a, like, 13-year-old on teenage songs. (laughs) 
and well, my friends you know and I couldn't is, dance. No, we music were, is a very, very powerful part of intuitives and and being psychic. So it, it, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I said we used for a period of time we would dream rock songs, and I would write them down in my journal. We come to school, and then we would have it over the other kids because even if we couldn't do the dances every week, we had the, we had the songs. <laughs> no, that is that's great. I I couldn't wait to ask you about it, and I didn't want to ask you about it in advance because I wanted you to, um, you know. To well, kind I of said be it's the kind of thing where you don't talk about it a lot it. because. So, um, well, let me ask you a question. Did you write this to be a serial? Because I know you've written for a while, and um, uh, you know, did you? What were your intentions for this? Because you were probably. Doing an outline or free flowing, what? How did it come to be? Well, I was originally writing this because I had a lot of odd jobs. I was working for the Wall Street Transcript. I was working for different places, and so I was writing this book on and off, lunchtime, whatever. And then it got to the point where there were clubs that I was going to, and I would get invitations. A place called Dorinka, a number of them, which were kind of the art clubs, and people were doing performances. And sometimes they wrote the performances down. Sometimes they came with scraps and acted them out. So I was doing a thing for a while with a number of people where every week we would go there to Dorinka and we would start reading. Um, I would read it, but I wasn't actually acting it out, kind of performing the roles. And then over time, um, as I was continuing to write it, the thing took shape. Yeah, well, that's, it's, it was very free-flowing. So, I mean, for it to be like a, it is, was in many ways a serial because you wanted your audience to come back the next night. I mean, that, I'm sorry, the next night, the next week. So there were cliffhangers, and you had to make the characters strong enough. Well, you know, it's, it's very much like a TV series. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, a TV series is a dumbed-down version of it, but you have to have your cliffhangers, and you have to get people to come back. That's the formula. Well, it is. I mean, I think the difference is, like, if you think of, like, older series, like places like Twin Peaks or something that had characters, but the difference with the TV series is you don't, the big picture, the book that it's based on, um, if you're not improvising it, I think it's very hard for them to sustain it unless they've got a really good, really good book to work from. No, I think that's probably true, and people have to be re-educated in, you know, in reading a serial, and I, you know, because the serial reading is kind of, you know, what it was old, but it's new again because of e-publishing platforms, right? So well, and also because of graphic novels. I mean, I think they've they've done graphic novels on each serial, and the people that have gotten into that from cartoons are kind of primed for it. Right. I think that you're right. It's a very, it's a special community. Yeah, and the people who grew up on soaps um, in the Latin culture, there's a whole thing with the soap operas. And they're, you know, they've been a part of them for a long time, and they've had, even Marquez has written about them. He has a yeah, whole sure. thing based on the, um, based on the soap, the writer, the script writer, and Julian, the script writer. It's all about the radio soaps. The, the TV novellas are very popular in the Latino community. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think so. It's it's there in the culture, and I think it it has been for a while. And our serials. I mean, I'm a fan. I was a fan of Nikita. I used to watch it every week. Yeah. No. Well, I, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Well, we're coming to the end of this segment, Suzanne. And in the next two segments, I'd really like to 
you know, talk about whatever you want to talk about that's relevant to the book because we want to, you know, plug you and not another book review dot blogspot dot com and <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. Okay. But, um, we want to talk about, I think we have a good two segments to talk about promotion. And I, again, I just want to say to my listeners, I, I've had a personal relationship with Susan that's been, it's like our little writer support group. And Susan's in New York and I'm in LA and we've just kind of free flow conversation and, and it's just been wonderful. And I want to kind of share a little bit of that with the listeners because those that or would-be authors, or are authors and don't know what to do, I think we could be helpful. Yeah, well, let's talk about the marketing. All right, well, listen, don't go away. Come sure. back right after this segment, and um, we'll be back right after this sure. commercial break. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At BR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. BR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of BR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.brpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. BR Public Relations. We do it all. www.brpublicrelations.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Get free advice from crisis communications guru Cindy Rakowitz now. Call 866-472-5788. Let's get back to Stars of PR. Here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. We're back with Susan Weinstein, writer, playwright, painter. Um, besides the anarchist girlfriends, her, her, book in, her books include Paradise Gardens and Tales of the Murr Family Onyx. She had a scholarship to Iowa City's Playwrights Workshop and some of her plays, Something About the Face, Rabies, White Walled Babes, have been produced. Um, 
you know, and is it, um, and you had a Houdini Doyle show? Yep, I have a play based on the uh, relationship between Harry Houdini and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle when Houdini wrote to Doyle and asked him to find a medium so he could, he could meet his mother. Okay, well, <laughs> your imagination is really, really incredible, otherworldly. <laughs> well, instead, it's based on reality. I found the letters by accident at the New York City Public Library. Well, there aren't many people that would find those letters by accident at the New York City Public Library. You say that as if, like, everybody just goes to the New York City Public Library and finds things like that, Susan. I mean, this is not like an everyday thing, okay? Well, I said it's kind of, it's kind of a, it's kind of funny, you know, when you find something to follow up on it. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple things I was thinking of. One was about the marketing for books on, online, which is really, um, I think in many ways still in its infancy because the two systems of books, if you're writing, if you're not writing genre, it's still fairly difficult to get your books reviewed online if you're not doing traditional publishing. So I think that that's something that's going to be changing Um, because what I'm talking about is if you wanted to do a blog tour, most of the sources are either for people who are very well-known people or people who are writing YA, romances, science fiction, um, fantasy, you know, those kinds of things. But in terms of if you're not doing genre, then you have to look harder to find sources. And e-books are interesting because they're outselling um, other types of books, but no one is reviewing them. Isn't it, like, so interesting? I, you know, I found that, you know, that I've worked with Chris Malberg, who wrote Car Wars, um, you know, a very, very imaginative um, novel about industrial terrorism. That's very, very timely because of what happened with Toyota and the acceleration accidents. I mean, it's, it really reflects the culture today and nightmares that can happen in industrial technology wars. Um, and even though you could... You know, you write great stuff and provide such imaginative content. It's almost like a literary era again, because for those of us that actually scour, you know, for imaginative intellectual content, there's just so much out there and people are reading it. But it's so funny because the discovery is is that, you know, people don't, reviewers don't really accept e-books as real books. We saw it, and I'll say out loud, with Alan Karumba because he's like, I only do paper books, right? <laughs> well, and the thing is, it has to do with the gatekeeping philosophy. In other words, they want to keep hold of the quality now, and they're becoming, it's becoming more rigid because there's so much more in the way of e-books out there, and anybody can write one, so that... To them, unless you've got the imprimatur of a major traditional house or you're a person who's well-known in your field, they don't feel that they want to be able to or that they have to really do it. And, uh, so, well, you know what? I think that that's going to have to change. And I see a very huge uh, metaphor with the magazine industry, and you know that's where I grew up. Um, it's, it's so interesting. Uh, a publication like Playboy... Is not gonna. It's not gonna be in the next ten years. I mean, it, everything about Playboy is going to be digital, and it's going to become an international brand because the magazine just doesn't make money anymore. I mean, it's being published because Half wants it to be published, um, but you know, it's not magazines. As you know from being a publicist, 
you know, paper copies are not going to be a part of our future. They're going to be very, very few and far between, and people are going to be downloading them on their reading devices in a different format. Now, interestingly enough, though, people are buying almost the same number of hardcovers. They're either doing hardcovers or e-books. What seems to be disappearing is paperbacks. No, well, that is very interesting. In terms of sales. Yeah, no, that is very interesting. But I, I was just kind of making the analogy between, you know, the magazine world. Oh, yeah. Well, the magazine world is all going to be digital content. No, exactly. So I, that's the analogy that I kind of picked up on when talking to book reviewers. It's like they don't, it's almost as if they don't know that magazines are dying, <laughs> at least in their paper form. And they don't really, they don't want to accept that that's really going to happen with books eventually. Well, the change is huge. And there's also the point that they're inundated now. The amounts of materials that they're getting is much more because of the technology where more people are writing them. So that they are, it's breaking down. How do you, how are you a gatekeeper when you're deluged with this stuff? Well, you start with the stuff that comes from the major houses, and those are the ones you're required to look at. No, now, it's true. It's and right. the thing you is, Publishers do... Weekly will do reviews of e-books, but, you know, something you have to pay for them. You know, it's like the same thing at Kirkus. There's now a different thing. If you are an e-book writer, you're going to have to pay for it like a vanity review. Isn't it interesting? I find that, like, any, and, you know, they'll say that they'll give you, uh, you know, an objective review, and I believe that, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's like everything is a market. What happened to the days of strictly editorial? I mean, the lines have really become blurred. Well, it's also because you're not advertising. There's the business of it. If you come from a big publisher, you're, they're putting advertising money. They're not going to be paying for their reviews so that there's also the economics involved in it. So it's a very strange, it's a very strange thing because the, uh, because at the same time, there are people like that young woman who has won an auction recently for her science fiction YA novels, and I think she got $26 million or something. What she did is she sold them online, and because they're a specific genre, it's YA science fiction, she was able to sell to that market off of her site and already create this bestseller, this huge thing, and then the publishers leaped on and had a big auction because suddenly she had kind of escaped the gatekeeping. Oh, it, well, it, it does happen, and she is representative of the changes that will come. I mean, it's one at a time, um, and it's fascinating to see those stories. And, um, you know, we're watching change as it happens, and you and I well, are both in the book marketplace, and we are really, you know, we're we're watching the business model change, and we're watching people, uh, you know, the resistance to keep their turf and to keep their territories in the reviewer world. But then you have the good, the good people like Paul the Book Guy, who I know that he's great. You, you've worked with, and he and Paul the Book Guy, you know, wants to support any new writer. He's so enthusiastic about it. It's um, so there are people, there are advocates. Well, that's the way I always marketed that every book had an audience, depending on what the book is. And as long as you can see what that audience is and segment it, you can go after it. Now, I don't do a lot of self-published books, usually not, for the, ma- for the major reason that unless I can see how to specifically start with reviews 
or whether there's a big market if you don't review. Is it a talk show market? And that's something I wanted to talk about with Serial. The thing that they're doing, which is a www.eatyourserial with an S-E-R-I-A-L.com, the thing about Eat Your Serial is that they are giving writers a platform for like 15 or 16 weeks, which is like a showcase. And that is a really valuable thing because if you just go and you self-publish yourself, which I did with, with Murph Family Onyx, if you go and you do that, you can create your book, you can go on to this Amazon, you can get your reviews, you can get your star reviews, but in terms of actually selling it or bringing people to the site, you've got to, if you're not doing a genre book, that was also cross ages, so it was kind of out of genre, it's extremely hard to have people know that it exists. So that the showcase that Serial is doing is really quite special. And it's something where they originally, no one's making money off the site. They all have jobs in publishing. And they kind of understand it's the same way when an actor is in a showcase. You want, they want people to come. They want people to see it. Well, and they're it, providing it, that for writers. Is there a charge to be a part of Serial or no? No. In oh. other words, if what they do is you become partners with them where you have a contract. If they accept the book and all the owners have to agree that they're going to accept it, they all read them and make their decisions, then what they do is you get a contract and they will they have your book up for the period of time you're licensed. Then you give, a, give them a percentage if after the end of the run you decide that you want to sell it to someone else, someone else buys it, maybe wants to put out a physical edition, or you do film rights, then you give them a small percentage. Oh, and what sure. the, okay, so you're, you're subsidy publishing partners in a way. You're partners in a way, and the thing is the editors are the same way. I, you get, I had an excellent editor, and she gets a percentage. The cover is by actually a friend of mine who is an incredibly well-known cover designer who really just did it as a contribution. Um, it's Kathy Saxa. It's amazing, amazing well, cover. The cover is beautiful. So, you know, but I mean, they her. also have cover artists that will take like a very small fee. So, I mean, what I'm saying is that they're kind of a digital publisher, and eventually they would do physical books. So they're not at the time. But it's interesting to me that they're giving a showcase, and that's something that helps people who are self-publishing because really that's the big thing. That's the really big issue. Anybody can publish on Create Space. But how are you going to get people to know that book is there? How are you actually going to market it? Because you're not going to get I have reviews. have a question, and then we'll have one more segment that sure. will free flow. But if you already self-published, um, I would imagine that it's harder to find a place with serial. Am I right? I mean, if somebody yes. went the self-publishing yes, you have route. Because they, they want to take a book that, has not been, that really has not been seen before in another form. Well, it makes sense. You know, oh, yeah, you because they're, have they're the licensing it that way. But I guess what I'm saying is it's very special because if you are self-publishing, I think that it's really important that you figure out an ad budget for marketing. You want to be, you've got to take out ads. Um, Facebook has ads, but you need to do that in order to build your audience. But you also still have to hand sell, um, and you can make much more out of hand selling and creating a following. Um, well, no, that all makes sense, and I want to talk more about hand selling and you know partner selling in the next segment. I want to talk a little bit more about virtual um, tours because you mentioned it in the last couple of segments, and I know that a lot of my listeners probably don't know what a virtual book tour is. Okay, so I'd like to 
discuss that with you a little bit. We'll just have a couple more minutes left in the last segment. And, um, you know, stay on to hear more about, um, about marketing your book because marketing is probably harder for writers than actually writing it these days if you're a good writer. So stand by and don't go away. <laughs> more with Susan Weinstein after this break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com. The inner workings of the mind and body are a fascinating study into who we are, our motivations, creativity, wants, and fears. Is everyone capable of great atrocities as well as great accomplishments? What haunts or helps us pursue the things we desire? We all want to know why we do the things we do and what makes us unique, but even more, we want to know what to do next. For answers to these questions, tune in to The Mind of the Matter with Dr. Susan Hickman on the Voice America Variety Channel every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific. Join us every week as we help you master the mind of the matter. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Cindy Rakowitz has won more awards then she can hang on her wall, including three Clios. Call in now at 1-866-472-5788 and you can have one. Okay, maybe not. But she will answer your questions. Back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. We're back with Stephen Weinstein and she has written the new serial, The Anarchist Girlfriend, and I want to encourage everybody to go back to the beginning of the show. If you have an, if you have an author in you, this is the show that you really have to listen to because we're talking about character development, we're talking about content development, and we're talking about the process, we're talking about platforms, and now we're talking about marketing and, and publicity that is very, very unique in the book world today, which is different than the book world 10 to 15 years ago for sure. And it's continuing to change, and this is the show to listen to. Um, Susan, so I wanted to ask you to define a virtual book tour because 
it's easier for well-known authors, obviously, but it's something that new authors can certainly engage in as well. Um, and talk a little bit about what that is and how you do it. Okay. I mean, I've been actually researching them. It's not something that I've been offering, but I probably will at some point soon. Um, what they call blog tours are very specific, and at this point in time, they're more for genre books. Like, let's say you've written a romance or a science fiction or a YA. Then you can find out a list of the blogs, or you can opt on and just join the places that offer blog tours. Some are free and some aren't. And what they'll do is they'll book you for, sometimes you'll be doing an interview with the host like on a, on their own their own thing and they'll they'll run it the interview on the site. Other times they'll ask you to write a Q and A, um, your own kind of interview that they'll post. Sometimes they may actually say that they'll post maybe an excerpt of your book. But what it is is that there are a whole number of blogs and that you will be visiting those blogs and you will be interviewing or interacting with them over a period of time. So let's say there's five in a week. Um, and they set it up for you. It's set up in advance. You can set it up for yourself by doing the research, or you can hire one of the places to do it, and then you work with them. And it gives you a whole bunch of publicity in a row over a period of time. So there used to be author tours, and there still is for some authors, where you go city to city, and you'll do readings in the bookstores at that city, and you'll do whatever local media that you can get in terms of radio and TV. And those are much more expensive situations than this is. This is something that can be done free or very low cost. If you hired a person, do you have any idea how much it costs? Or um, I know that it's low cost. I, I believe that it was like, you know, like 350 400 It was somewhere within that range. Well, it's very affordable. You mentioned before how important it is to put together a marketing budget. And most authors, because they're not making much money with, um, you know, their e-books today, you know, don't really have a budget. You know, a publicist or a marketing professional will say, well, what's your budget for marketing? And then the author kind of has to laugh saying, what? You know, um, I, I don't have a budget for marketing, and you feel kind of silly. And, um, you know, it's hard for, you know, an artist to scrape together $10,000, which is like the minimum, right? Right. But if you have alternatives like, you know, under 500 bucks for a virtual book tour yeah a blog tour getting, i mean at least you're getting the word out there um you know being a little relevant is better you know isn't great but it's better than being not relevant at all well i mean you can google blog tours and you can research them and you can decide which one you want and you can go forth in it or you yourself can go on twitter or go on google and you can look up the, the subject the genre in which your book is and then you can actually message people and ask them if they'd like to receive a book and whether they would be interested in having you on you know, doing it that way. So it depends. I mean, you can do it totally free, or you can do it the other ways. And I came across at least one blog tour place that was free, but again, it was all genre. So, but what I mean by genre is it had to be romance because there are a number of romance blogs. It had to be science fiction. It had to be YA or young adult um, or Christian. There are a number of different Christian ones. 
No, well, you know, it's it's interesting. So it's important for book writers to know that the free ones are kind of genre-specific, and, you know, it's just the way it is. And well, most because... of the blogs are, are genre-specific either. Um, there are a number of book blogs so that you do not waste your time. There are a number of book blogs that are maybe paid by publishers, uh, like Story Siren. There's a number of them where they're doing genre or not genre, but they're going to be doing people who are being published at houses. They're probably not going to do your book if they don't do e- they don't do ebooks and they won't do people they don't know about. Right. Well, unless you pay for it, and then you'll find somebody that might do it. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so but this, mean, but it again, does take the time. But ads on Facebook are extremely like if you take out a Facebook page for your book, and then they have ads that you can buy, and you can decide if you want to pay. $50 a week or $100 a week or whatever you want to spend, and then you can watch it. Now, the thing about it that I was going to say is, like, I did that for my book, which was Books of Wonder Carried in New York. It's a, it's a series of stories about one mermaid family. And the story with this one was is that I self-published it because it crosses ages. It wasn't specific language for eighth graders or fifth graders. It was one that was for families and it could be read to and that's not the kind of book that's being published now in terms of children's so that this book um i took an ad out i had a create space i i did on create space and i did take out a page in on facebook and i did take out ads on facebook now what i found out on this which was weird is that i had a good number of people that responded to the ads i had like a couple hundred people who were interested it didn't translate much into sales so that in terms of creating sales, you also need to, A, read wherever you can read, local libraries, um, any organizations, grassroots, or what I did actually was walk the book to stores I knew that would probably sell it. And so I was able to create some kind of an audience, like at the Jersey Shore where they, anything Mermaid sells, and Books of Wonder in New York sold it because they do the Oz books. They do classic books that cross age groups, so that they took it. So I'm... That's what I mean by hand selling. Well, no, hand selling. It's funny. It's like the encyclopedia salespeople that used to come around selling. Remember those? <laughs> well, but I mean, this isn't going to people's houses. You're going to stores and oh, talking I know, to managers. I know, but you it's know, still pounding the pavement, and you know, it's. I, I think that it's good that you know that's an avenue that still exists, and it's kind of old school sales, whether it's business to business or business to consumer, right? Right, and, and the uh, thing is, is that if you can tell them that you're local, people are actually quite nice, and if they think that you're going to bring in people, they'll give you readings, but they'll say, how many can you bring in? So there is still an old school element, and, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's great. In the business book genre, it's all about giving lectures in the academic circuit or at, at, at conventions. And trade shows, so it, you know it, you have to appeal to that audience, and they'll promote you, and they'll sell your, you know, they'll help you sell your book and promote your book. They'll even buy your book, but you know it's kind of like, how much are you going to help me sell too? Well, exactly. So that I think you have to, when you're not being overwhelmed about it, but you have to kind of think about who is your audience, and you have to promote virtually, and you also have to promote physical. You have to promote to real world out there. I know. I, well, I think that this show was just chock full of information, and um, you were just extremely generous with your time. And um, No, no, I, I've enjoyed this. This is great, and I really am so happy to be talking about The Anarchist Girlfriend and, you know, and to also talk about Eat Your Cereal, and I hope that people will, you know, go to the site 
and I am so happy that you've given me the opportunity to be on your show. Well, I, I would love to have you back. You've become my, my author buddy, and it's very, very special to me. And I want people to read Susan's blog, notanotherbookreview.blogspot.com. You could follow Susan on Twitter, at SWPubREL. Um, you know, I'm very proud of you for the way that you've been mastering social networking, Susan. And um, I want everybody to you know, check out The Anarchist Girlfriend and um, eat your cereal and all of that kind of stuff because I think that you'll really, really, really enjoy it. So, again, if you're just tuning into this show, go back to the beginning because it's really worthwhile. Download this baby. Susan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, And we'll have you back again soon. Everybody take care and have a great, safe weekend. Um, Oh, and by the way, the show will be rebroadcast next week. So if you just want to listen live, go ahead and do so. That's Take great. care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Please come back next Thursday and every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern for more insider information on the world of public relations with Cindy Rakowitz on Stars of PR. See you next week. I am an American idol. I got synthetic to sell. I kill my mama to get